Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, how does Ireland's immigration system work? Now, immigration has grown in Ireland over the past year, putting the system used for those seeking refuge under increasing pressure. This is primarily due to the war in Ukraine, which has seen thousands flee following the Russian invasion of their country. But last year also saw a record number of people seeking asylum from other countries too. This is possibly due to a catch-up factor as COVID travel restrictions were lifted. Now, the system was already far from perfect, but in recent weeks, the government has warned that it is unable to house some new arrivals, a number of whom were faced with the prospect of sleeping rough. This is now leading to heightened tensions in some communities, where many have used it as a focal point to hang their wider frustrations on, in particular because of the housing crisis. But it's also becoming a lightning rod for far-right groups. So today, we'd like to take a look at the system itself, how it works, who it seeks to help, and what the challenges are right now. To look at all of this with us, I'm joined by Nick Henderson today, who's CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. And Nick, many thanks for joining us today. Not at all. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So Nick, you and your team, you're at the coalface of this system. To get us started, though, I think we need to just define a few terms briefly. So when we hear the term asylum seeker, what does that mean? Yeah, so asylum seeker is the phrase that is used to refer to somebody who has made an application for asylum, but has not yet had a decision on the application. If they go on to be uh, recognized as somebody who needs protection, they would then be recognized as a refugee and they would then be referred to as a refugee. As an organization, the Irish Refugee Council tends not to use the phrase asylum seeker. I suppose this, this is for a variety of reasons, one of which is the negative connotations that it can have. And we use the phrase person seeking international protection or people seeking international protection. Uh, and I suppose in, also in the last 10 years, gradually we've phased out and, and it's actually no longer used the phrase asylum is no longer used by the Irish government, certainly not in the in law. It's international protection or protection. Uh, so asylum seeker, though, is just generally used to describe somebody who's applied for protection, but not yet had a decision on their application. So that's really good to get the clarity on that. And what are the differences then between someone we would consider a person seeking international protection and a refugee? Yeah, so asylum seeker is still in the process. They haven't yet had a decision. They go through a process that is takes place before the International Protection Office, which is the state body. It's a, a body within the Department of Justice that considers applications for international protection. If somebody is successful in that process, they would be recognized as a refugee or there's another protection status that I can come to in a second. But that means that they are identified as somebody who has a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country. And I can break all that down as, as we go through. If they're unsuccessful in that application, they do have one right of appeal, which goes to the International Protection Appeals Tribunal. And again, I can talk about that. But the main difference between the two terms is one asylum seeker is still in the process. And then refugee is somebody who's been through the process and has 
identified by the Irish state as in need of protection. So as such, really, we shouldn't use any other term other than international protection applicant for someone waiting to be assessed. Yeah, it, look, we won't, when we see it and we ourselves use it in the media, because I think if you stop somebody in the street and said, what's an international protection applicant, they'd probably say, uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds like something maybe to do with child protection or something like that. So we recognize that asylum seeker is generally the term used uh, by the public for referring to people in the system. But strictly speaking, international protection applicant is the correct phrase. And then a refugee is somebody who's been through the decision-making process and is in need of protection by the Irish government, because otherwise they'd be returned to their country. There is a, a an additional form of protection called subsidiary protection. And this came into European Union law around 15 years ago, and it was created to deal with the situation where somebody may be fleeing a civil war or be fearing ill treatment or torture by their government, but they couldn't show that it's for one of five reasons that are required by the Refugee Convention. So it's an additional form of protection uh, to deal with, to assist and protect people who cannot show, for example, that they would receive, they are being tortured for reason of their political opinion, uh, or they would be imprisoned because they're of a particular ethnicity. It's for a wider group of people. Uh, and Ireland now has both forms of protection. So it includes refugee protection uh, and subsidiary protection also. And Nick, I know we hear a lot about migrants and sometimes economic migrants. How do they fit into the equation? Yeah, these are various terms. And I suppose someone, we could say that all uh, migrants is the sort of headline term under which all people in this situation fall. People who are coming to Ireland to work for tech companies all the way through to people who are coming here to seek protection because of persecution that they fear in their, their country. But within the term migrant, there are different groups of people, including international protection applicants, asylum seekers, as we've already spoken about. And, and that's the group of people we as an organization at the Irish Refugee Council, it's our mission to assist people uh, in that situation. Economic migrants is a slightly more tricky term that is often used by some people in the media and also by people who are against this issue to say, oh, look, all, all asylum seekers are actually economic migrants. Um, I don't think it's ever defined in law what an economic migrant is. And I suppose let's re also reflect on the fact that it, it, it carries a lot of negativity and I'm not sure that's correct. People move around the world uh, for a better life all the time. Irish people know that better than many others, but in this context, it can be used to, to, to as a form of, uh, I suppose, a slur or a trope to say that people uh, aren't coming here because they need protection, but are economic migrants. Yeah, as we're learning, uh, language is very important in the in the discussion around immigration, and I presume people fleeing the war in Ukraine they are classed as refugees. Yeah, so this is a really interesting category of 
refugee law for, for nerds like ourselves. And it actually is traced back as far as 2001. And at that time, the European Union began to realize that they needed to harmonize refugee law across the member states. And one of the things that they did was they realized, and this was against the backdrop of the Balkan Wars in the 1990s, that they needed to provide for a scenario where there could be a war and large numbers of people at Europe's borders could be on the move. And a system would have to be created to give protection to people very short notice. And as a result, they created something called the Temporary Protection Directive, and it uh, allows for basically, in effect, a person or a group of people to skip the asylum process. They don't have to demonstrate that they have a fear of persecution or a fear of torture on account of their ethnicity or, or the reasons that we'd be usually seeing in the case of refugees. If they meet the definition of the Temporary Protection Directive and its implementing law, and I'll come to that in a second, they are a person and uh, a beneficiary of temporary protection and they can stay in, in the European Union member state. This wasn't used for from 2001 until 2022, until last uh, March. It just sat there. It was discussed as something that might be used on, on a number of occasions including the Syrian crisis of 2015, but it was never used. But then, uh, let's fast forward to the 24th of February, I think it was, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and European Union decision makers realized that there would be a large number of people on the move at very short notice on Europe's borders. And in a relatively short period, and surprisingly short period of, of time, just a few days really, the European Union activated this decision, and Ireland, had it already sitting on its statute books, the International Protection Act included the provision for temporary protection. So to answer your question, yeah, refugees from Ukraine, they are strict. I think if you were to stop somebody in the street, they'd say that they're refugees, but they're slightly different in that they haven't had to show that individual uh, fear of persecution that a refugee might otherwise have to show. That's really interesting, Nick, and a very important distinction there. And, and obviously we've seen why so many Ukrainians have had to flee for almost a year now. But how has it decided whether people are international protection applicants in general? Is it down to the country they're arriving here from or is it their personal circumstances? It's their personal circumstances generally. And at the very beginning of the war in Ukraine, several hundred people, I think, who had arrived in Ireland from Ukraine decided to go into the international protection process because there was a few days where the Temporary Protection Directive wasn't activated. So somebody from Ukraine who may, may be eligible for temporary protection can still enter the international protection process. But really it's not uh, unless they are seeking a more permanent status because there there is a degree of precarity around temporary protection. It's on a, on a, It's been extended now to March 2024, but we don't know what will happen after that. And with refugee status, it's a status that is uh, indefinite. Um, it's a more secure status. But putting aside to refugees from Ukraine who meet the definition of temporary protection, it's really per somebody's personal circumstances. And to be a refugee, you have to meet a very particular definition. 
you have to show that you have a well-founded and this has to be objectively and subjectively demonstrated. So I may say that I have a fear of persecution. I may fear it with all my heart, but I would still have to show that there is evidence, objective evidence from my country that supports that. I have to show that I fear persecution and the courts have considered this at length and there is a particular threshold for persecution. I, you, you have to show a particular treatment from the state or from an, a non-state actor. Uh, I don't want to give examples, but it's things like a tap on the shoulder or a clip around the ear are unlikely to be persecution. And then you have to tie it all up to one of the five convention reasons. You have to show that you're fearing persecution, you have a well-founded fear of persecution on account of one of five reasons, that, and they are race, religion, nationality, particular social group, and your political opinion. Uh, and unless you can meet those four pillars of the definition, you are not a, you're not a refugee. Uh, and that's one of the things to emphasize throughout this process, and particularly in con the context of some of the stuff we're hearing and seeing online and and elsewhere. It's a really difficult process. It's an arduous process, and you have to meet the definition. And if you don't, you're not a refugee. Nick, obviously a lot of attention in our own public discourse on our immigration system here, but how broadly, how does Ireland's immigration system compare to other European countries? Each one has its different peculiarities. Generally, there, and this is a big generalization, but states on the periphery of Europe, I'm thinking places like Greece uh, and Italy in particular, have tended to have bigger problems. They're also dealing with much large, larger numbers of people, but they would have bigger problems. And by this, I mean that there can be poor accommodation or even no accommodation. The integration that is offered to support people can be uh, poorer. Then as you tend to move west, there can be uh, improvements, but really, and one of the really interesting things and, and, and disconcerting things of the last year or 18 months has been that all European member states have, are, tend to be failing in one way or another. Uh, countries that you wouldn't expect, such as the Netherlands, where they had to bring in Médecins Sans Frontières into one of their reception centers that was accommodating people. Belgium, uh, just a few, not even a few kilometers, meters, hundreds of meters away from the European Union's capital buildings, there are currently people sleeping rough. Uh, all countries are struggling with this issue. Looking from an Irish perspective in particular, one of the things that has set us slightly apart is that we're not in, in the Schengen group of countries where where you can uh, move around without uh, having to show a, a passport. Obviously, that's by virtue of our location. There is a border when you enter the enter Ireland. Uh, we would be influenced, and we may come to this to a greater extent by UK immigration policy. I think one thing to reflect on is, on a positive way, is the Irish response to the situation in Ukraine. It's not perfect. There's been many challenges. It's going to be really difficult periods coming up. But Irish communities, the Irish state, have responded really positively. And that's maybe not been seen in other countries. Uh, 
where there, there are problems and the, the 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 type and level of support given to people to people is less. But it's it's a really topical issue, as you, as you can say in Ireland, as we we can talk about in Ireland currently. But it's also very topical throughout throughout the the rest of the European Union. And Nick, when we look back over the the system in Ireland, do you think the introduction of direct provision was the biggest change when it came to our immigration system, or have there been others? Yeah, it's direct provision was introduced uh, in early two thousands, two thousand, I believe, two thousand one, in response to an increasing number of people seeking asylum here uh, from around uh, the world, and it it was introduced in response to what the government perceived was a problem in that they large numbers of people were coming here but they couldn't be accommodated using the traditional housing uh, supports that would be offered to other people and so they literally decided to directly provide accommodation it was always meant to be a temporary type of accommodation three months maximum i think and unfortunately it's still with us uh, many, many years later. One of the things that we've seen in recent years, in the last couple of years in particular, is that actually direct provision uh, has expanded and there's different types of accommodation now being provided. Uh, for There's a much greater use of emergency accommodation, which is places like hotels. You'll be familiar with the uh, City West, the first and City West has three current functions. One is the hotel for refugees from Ukraine, there's the processing center for refugees from Ukraine, but there's also what's called the transit hub, which is basically the convention center room, and that's where protection applicants are currently being accommodated, around 800 people currently. So, and then there's places like East Wall, which, and Dolkane House, which are converted office blocks. So direct provision as we would have spoken about it maybe four years ago was the sort of classic building on the outskirts of a uh, of a rural town quite isolated lots of problems around it but there could have been some sort of infrastructure built up around it by the community what we've seen in recent years as i say is just a proliferation of different types of accommodation uh and including tents should say uh, and and standards that have deteriorated as well, uh, and that's been really challenging for the people living in in these types of accommodations. Really difficult. Uh, it's also been challenging for us as an organisation and our and partner organisations to be try to respond to people in different types of situations. A lot of it still is the same. There is a government commitment white paper and program government commit commitment to end direct provision, but I think that probably looks quite distant given our current circumstances. So if I, Nick, I, I arrive into Ireland and I'm seeking asylum, what types of difficulties are people now facing when they do arrive here? Yeah, well, let's talk about the very current difficulties, which is that if you were a, if you were a single person without family, the government stated as of last Tuesday that you, they could not provide accommodation for you. Uh, and that is because, and we may come to this, the the city west, tra- city west transit hub that I've spoken about is is closed for new intakes, and the government state that there's they say that there's no other accommodation available. Now, 
uh, our experience in the recent days is that some people are actually being accommodated. They may be homeless for a couple of days. So you, if you're in that situation, you may, you may be sleeping rough still. You may be lucky enough to be offered accommodation, and that may be in City West Transit Hub, which is a large open-air convention center hall. We are very concerned about conditions in that, uh, that location. We've written to government around it. We did media on this in, in, the, in December. Uh, then you may be transferred from City West out to another location. And one of the issues is that it's just the, the different types of accommodation that I've spoken about. You could find yourself in a tent, you could find yourself in a converted office block, and you could be in a mainstream direct provision center. Uh, and then there is the actual asylum claim, the protection claim that you're putting forward. One of the big issues of the recent of recent years that we've criticized is, is delays in decision making. Now, the government have responded to that in the autumn by, in effect, fast tracking applications. And we, again, were very concerned about this. We are concerned that it's removing the opportunity for substantial legal advice. Uh, and we've written to government with the, those those uh, concerns. And we're, we're yet to really see what the consequence of that will be, particularly on decision-making recognition rates and so forth. So it's, it's, it's a really difficult situation currently. It's very challenging. Uh, and there, there, if we'd been speaking about this three or four years ago, we would have probably had a, a range of other difficulties, like not being able to cook in your direct provision center and things like that. But currently, there's a very, very acute and unique set of an unprecedented set of, of challenges that people are facing. And Nick, as you say, it's 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 at a point where it's pretty unwieldy and very hard to manage at the moment. But if someone uh, is waiting on a decision about their application for asylum, you mentioned it can take some time. Can you give us a sense of the impact that this is having on families in particular? Yeah, we did a report on this in July 2021 called Hanging on a Thread. We surveyed people who are coming to us and uh, seeking our support and we asked them, how long they'd been waiting and, and the effects on them. And it was really troubling to get people's uh, uh, responses. Uh, and it's a lot of things, things like that their relationship with family members was affected, their mental health was affected, their a relationship with the, uh, with a, a family member they may have had, had outside of uh, Ireland with uh, a relative in their country of origin or a spouse or a child in their country of origin was under pressure or at least or possibly just broken down completely uh, the as of last summer and I, I we don't have more up-to-date statistics and it will be interesting to see what's happened in terms of the recent fast tracking but as of last summer I think it was something like 24 months that average waiting time so if you applied for asylum today you wouldn't get a decision until 24 months time I think that's probably reduced a little but it, it's still a very uh, long period of time that somebody has to wait. Uh, so as I say, it's really, really challenging. Now, it has improved somewhat in that the, as a result of a Supreme Court case several years ago, people now have the right to work. So it used to be that the people were just completely idle. They didn't have anything to do. Now people can work, uh, but it's still really difficult situations that people are facing. Now, one thing I want to be sure of is that we, we've called for an, an 
uh, end delays, but we also uh, don't uh, agree with and are critical of fast tracking um, because it, this is one of the most important decisions that the government, Irish government, make whether somebody or not will be be returned to persecution. And in that process, people need legal advice. Uh, and we believe in the current changes where somebody's having to complete a questionnaire in a waiting room on the day that they apply for asylum, that's not right. That re is practically removing people's access to legal advice. And we're really concerned about that. So there is this balance where people don't have to wait for, for two and a half years or two years, but the idea that people can be turned around within a few weeks is also a real concern to us. So, Nick, clearly, as you mentioned, capacity is a big issue. Uh, what could the government do to prevent the capacity issues happening? Or is it simply not going to change while people are coming from the war in Ukraine? Yeah, we're no doubt we're in a difficult period. Uh, and if you think this time last year and the government say, and I think it's worth acknowledging it the, all the time that they say this, that in this time last year, there was somebody, something like 7,000 people in the direct provision system, probably a little bit more, 8,000 maybe, or 9,000. We're now, uh, less than 12 months later, we're now in a completely different situation. A uh, significant number of people f from Ukraine and also 15,000 people have applied for international protection in 2022. And there are 65,000 beneficiaries of temporary protection from Ukraine. So massive, massive changes. Like, there's no doubt. And, and for the record, a lot of people within government working very, very hard in this, including the department, mostly, most, and in particular in the Department of Children. What we're concerned about is that while the emergency response to Ukraine was strong, we struggled to develop good long-term planning. Uh, and we're now, because of that, we're now in a situation where we're looking at a spring where people are still arriving, the war in Ukraine, for example, is continuing. It may take a turn for the worse, with the um, with uh, offensives on both sides, uh, and we're now in a situation where, having put people in hotels, those hotels are being reclaimed by the tourist industry, uh, and very seriously, we're not able to offer people accommodation. So we need more uh, to need to be thinking about relieving some of the pressure on the Department of Children, which is has a huge brief. Uh, we need to be thinking about greater leadership, the idea of a refugee response director, somebody to to plan, to coordinate, to ensure that government departments are, are saying, are doing what they say they're doing. Uh, we need to be thinking about bringing more accommodation online at a short, short notice. That's not easy. We acknowledge that completely, but there is a significant amount of state land where we could be putting modular housing or modular buildings at short notice. Uh, we're concerned that other parts of government aren't uh, properly responding uh, or recognizing the gravity of this situation, I think is something that I would really want to emphasize in the last couple of weeks. It's sometimes it's like they, the other government departments are really, aren't fully realizing the situation they're in. We don't hold a magic bullet. Uh, we recognize that and there's no easy solution, but there are a range of things that we can we think they can be doing. And of course, we can't talk about immigration, Nick, without addressing the recent protests taking a place against accommodation and proposed accommodation for immigration uh, in Ireland. What sort of effect do you think that can have on the people being targeted? Because, I mean, the protesters are not protesting at Leinster House, let's be clear. They're protesting at accommodation centres. It is of real con concern to us. We recognize that 
there, I, I think from what we can see, there's a variety of types of people in the in this who are demonstrating and in the Ballymun example, there may be the the granny who's lived there for 30 years and is wondering what's going on. There may be the kids that are there for uh, for the crack, but there is also a significant amount of people who are not in that community, not from that community of the far right who are seeking to use this issue to put forward their, their agenda. Um, and it doesn't take long, unfortunately, to uh, five minutes online looking at a few accounts and you can really see what these people believe. Uh, and it's a, a real concern, uh, and and it's it it's from the from the feedback and from speaking to people who are in this situation who are living in centres where there are demonstrations, people are really fearful, uh, uh, and it's 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 a long way from the proud right to to protest and demonstration that exists in this country. And as you say, Nick, I mean, sometimes it's a case, isn't it, that because there might be a bit of what seems to be an information vacuum, locals are, are concerned and they're being kind of led by certain uh, people with certain agendas. I mean, what could be done to communicate to local communities about what's going on? Yeah, I think communities need better communication. They, they need to be told, ideally, before people are arriving what's happening. They need to know that the resources for people are being provided, that if there is a group of people coming, that there are extra GPs or employment, uh, education, employment supports. Now, the government say, and I acknowledge this to an extent, that they are in a very difficult situation. The Department of Children say this in particular, very difficult situation. They have to having to bring around accommodation at short notice. But Unfortunately, I think we're paying the price of not taking decisions last summer and autumn where we could have been bringing or developing new different new types of accommodation. But it's um, I, I, one thing that we've been criticized of, for example, was saying that people don't have an automatic right to consultation. And the reason for that, we say that, is because that could result in a situation where communities just have the right have veto. You know, ideally, of course, they should be consulted with. There should be better communication uh, and a clear uh, outlining of the resources that are being offered back to a community, but it's not always possible. And then uh, there's also a responsibility on us as an organization and, and government and other organizations to show why we still need to be doing this, um, why people from Ukraine need to be to be offered san sanctuary and protection, uh, why we should be offering people refugee protection. Uh, but it's, 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 it is no doubt it's a difficult situation. So just to go back to our run through of different terms earlier, we've heard some protesters mention the idea of an illegal immigrant. Is there such a thing? Yeah, there is a, uh, th that phrase is used in Irish law. I think it is the uh, Illegal Immigrants Act 2000, which states that a, uh, a person is an illegal immigrant if they enter the country without permission. A few things that should be caveated, strongly caveating, caveating that is firstly, uh, there is no visa to claim asylum. So it's not as if I can go to the Irish embassy somewhere and say, look, I want to come to your country to get a visa. Unfortunately, the system means that people often have to travel uh, on, a face, uh, on a fake passport. They may have to use the assistance of a smuggler. And therefore, they may 
uh, not have a visa when they arrive in this country. Uh, But uh, if they make a protection application, uh, they then have a a temporary temporary status within the country which they can legally reside here while their asylum claim, their protection application is being considered. Uh, and it's important, and this is something to to, to flag in the re- in the context of the far right's uh, messaging. You know the idea that all oh, people can come here; they're not uh, they're not vetted, and so forth. Like it's an incredibly arduous and strict process. Asylum seekers would be interviewed by an immigration officer on arrival, directed to the international protection office, where they're fingerprinted, passport, and then other ident- identity documents are taken. They're then given a designated address at which they must reside. They must complete a detailed questionnaire on arrival, and then they're interviewed shortly after. So it's not an easy process by any means. There's a very strict controls about what a person can and cannot do. It's also important to mention that the, the 1951 Refugee Convention, I think it's Article 31, also says that a person shouldn't be punished uh, if for a legal entry, if they then go on to make an asylum claim, and the, the context of that is that it's simply very difficult, if not impossible, to, to travel legally and then seek asylum. Finally, Nick, really from everything you've said, it's clear that the Irish immigration system is under pressure. At uh, times it has been seen to be creaking, but where do you see the system going now in the current climate? Yeah, uh, thinking about this a lot recently, I suppose there's a good, the bad, the ugly scenario. And the good would be that the war in Ukraine ends somehow and that uh, gradually people no longer need protection here or across Europe. Some people may go back to Ukraine. I'd say a significant number of people will stay. That there is conflicts on Europe's borders or further afield wind down, both of those things I think are pretty unlikely, at least for the for the coming six or twelve months. Uh, the ugly scenario, I suppose, would be where we see uh, further power, not power because I don't think they do have power, but growth of the far right, um, further homelessness, um, a government that where all the work is being done by one department and other departments aren't taking up their responsibilities. I'd hope that won't happen, but I think the likely scenario is just a con- probably a continuation of the bad where we, we're, we're, we're just going along on a day-to-day basis. Some people are being accommodated, some people are not. Um, but there are reasons to be hopeful. You know, I think things like the community responses in East Wall for all, Ballymun for all, Drimner for all, places like that. Community sponsors are very strong. Uh, I think there is still a significant amount of support for this issue amongst the Irish people. 30 years we've been existing as an organization and we know that Irish communities have always tried to welcome people despite all the problems that we've spoken about. We will continue to have problems, but if the right leadership is put in place, the right policies are taken, and with the power of Irish communities, we can we can get through this period. But it, it, it will be difficult, but it, you know, I don't think it's worth looking at it in the bigger context as well, that this is a moment, it's a period of time uh, which we may look back on in the future and, and say, well, look, we got through that. And also bigger context is that, particularly in the context of Ukraine, other countries uh, on, in other parts of Europe are 
are, are welcoming way more people like Czech Republic I think is 2.5 million or something like that uh, not easy but I think we'll get through this period okay well many thanks for joining us and for all those insights today Nick appreciate it thank you thanks for having me Thanks again to Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating where you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>